Would you stand with me by turning to Genesis chapter 3? We were in this chapter last time, and uh, I want to kind of pick through some passages, so if you would uh, bear with me, we won't read the entirety of it again. In fact, I want to start by reading, first of all, in verse 7, where it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them, of course, speaking of Adam and Eve, were opened after they had sinned against the Lord. And they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then if you look down to verse 13, as God is really pronouncing the judgment against Adam and Eve and the serpent for what they had done, He said, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord said, God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then finally, verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we reflect on these passages this morning that your Holy Spirit would turn your powerful reflector upon us, that we, Lord, might really see our own selves, our own hearts, and understand your ways and guide us by your hand through your truth. Just let this be a time in which we each individually will encounter you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the Old Testament, there are at least 20 different names for God. If you're uh, into Kabbalism, it's, it's, there's 72 names of God. But this idea that God is described in various ways because really God has various aspects and the only way we can describe His character, His nature, is by the various names that we're given, particularly in the context of a specific moment in which God miraculously did something in somebody's life. And as we saw so far in our first two weeks into this series, that he began by describing him as the almighty creator, that God is the one who made and sustains everything, including you and me. And uh, amazingly, he made us in his likeness, in his image, which in short just simply said God made us so that we could walk with him, we could have fellowship with him, we could have a relationship with him. So that God never began by creating a religious system, what He began was by creating a relationship. And understanding and making that distinction is critically important because human nature loves to depersonalize the spiritual world so that we can put it into a codified system called religion. But God has never been about making a religion. He's been always about drawing us into relationship on an ever-increasing degree of intimacy. So we looked at God as being our creator. As Paul would later say to the Athenian philosophers of this God, he says, in him we live, we move, we have our being, we are his offspring. And then last week we talked about not only God as the almighty creator, but as the rule maker, that basically the righteous judge who sets the standards and determines what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, what is good and what is evil, so that we know intuitively in ourselves that there are these things, there are these dichotomies in our world. There are some things that are good, there are some things that are evil. 
There are some things that are true. There are some things that are false. And there's a way that we should live and walk and pursue life, and there's a way that we should avoid. And it's this very dynamic that, that really sets people apart, if you will, in this world. But for many people, their concept of God never goes beyond that point. They see God as the almighty God, the creator, the powerful one, the big man upstairs, as some like to say. They see him as the one who has the rule book and who looks on humanity and says, good, bad, and ugly. But there's a third dynamic which we look at here, and where, as he goes on, where we discover that God is not just those things. He's also, by his own description, the gracious God. Like two sides of the same coin, these words mercy and grace really kind of live together as an expression of how God has extended Himself to mankind. When we talk about the mercy of God, mercy literally means that I don't get what I deserve. When I say, I'm going to show you mercy, I'm telling you that you've done something you deserve to be whacked for, like a game of whack-a-mole. You deserve that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to withhold my judgment, withhold my retribution, and I'm going to show you mercy. That's one side of the coin of our relationship with God. In fact, we find when we go through the Old and New Testament that when God always speaks about engaging mankind, He always begins from the premise of mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Blessed are the merciful. Why are the merciful blessed? Because they're the people that understand that the whole relationship with God is predicated on Him not giving what you deserve. Now, the other side of that is grace. Grace is getting what I do not deserve. So that when we talk about God being gracious towards us, we're saying, I have had an experience with God that I know I didn't work for, I didn't earn. It didn't come to me by my, my, my intelligence or my uh, perceptions or my hard work. This is a gift that God has bestowed upon me. And, and He did it for one reason, because He is a merciful and a gracious God. It may surprise you to know that that actually, even in the Old Testament, is the way that God prefers to describe Himself. Because again, God is often mischaracterized, misrepresented by people who want to portray Him solely as the Creator or to show Him as being the judge. Even within the church, sometimes we are guilty of portraying God <clears throat> as being quite angry with the world that He created. But in fact, when he is asked to show his glory by Moses in the book of Exodus, when God, he says, show me your glory, let me experience your presence, listen to how he describes himself, his self-description. You might call this God's autobiographical sketch of who he is. He says in Exodus 33 and 34, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate God, which means merciful in the Hebrew context, the merciful God and gracious God, I am slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin without at the same time also being just. He says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Do you realize, maybe you don't, that is the most oft-quoted statement 
throughout the Old Testament, more so than any other passage that we find, that statement is repeated over and over again, three times by the psalmist alone. It's repeated by, by in the book of Numbers, in the book of Psalms three times, in the book of Joel, the book of Jonah, the book of Nahum. Over and over again, when those writers, those prophets want to say, this is who the God is that we serve. He is the compassionate, the gracious, the slow to anger, abounding in love, maintaining love for thousands, forgiving wickedness. This is who I am. And it's sad because oftentimes we lose sight of that perspective of who he really is. I remember when my father was he was rather old at the time. He was in his 80s, and, and uh, his sister, whom he had been estranged with since his 20s, had passed away, and her lawyer forwarded a packet of pictures from their family. And he hadn't seen any representations of his brothers and sisters and mom and dad for probably 60, 70 years by that point. And I remember as he opened them up and he was looking at these pictures, he was struggling in his mind to remember who his brothers were. He's looking at them and trying to figure out, now, which was this Alex or was this James? And he's going through, and I felt the tragedy of that moment, that here was not only these memories, but also that this severance had taken place in his life, this separation. He lost sight of who God, who his, his siblings were. And I think sometimes in a similar way, we can easily lose sight of who God is. We can become so enmeshed in the drama, in the turmoil of our own personal lives. Or we can turn God into such an academic pursuit of our intellect and a perfection of our theology that we really lose sight of who God is. And what God says very clearly, if you step back and get the proper perspective, is I am the gracious God. I am not the angry God. I am very slow to anger. You have to provoke me. I'm not the God who doesn't want to love you. In fact, I'm the one who has to constantly put in the effort to maintain the relationship of love. I'm not the God who's trying to separate you from me. I'm the God who's trying to draw you as close to me as possible that you might experience me. And I'm afraid sometimes that in the increasingly vitriolic di uh, dialogue that's taking place within our culture, that we are beginning to portray Christ and the gospel and everything associated with it as being something based on other than grace. We become experts in telling people what's wrong with them, where they failed, instead of telling them that it doesn't really matter how desperately you have failed. There is a God who is gracious, who is merciful. There is a God who abounds in love and yearns to maintain that relationship and to forgive sin as we humble ourselves before Him. So that as we were talking about the last few weeks about Adam and Eve and their sin, true, it is God who brings judgment and justice down upon all mankind. But God didn't just simply leave them or forsake them. It wasn't like God said, I had a great plan, and as typical, you human beings have screwed it all up. And so out with plan A, and I've got to pull in plan B, my, my, what will I do? It may be hard for us to grasp in our minds because of the limitation of our own intellects as humans, as, as organic-based matter, but the simple reality that Scripture reveals is that before anything was ever spoken into existence, before God said, let there be light, there was already a plan. Revelations 13.8 says that Jesus Christ, basically, He was crucified from before the foundations of the world. 
that God had set in this place that men might encounter God on the basis of the grace of God and the mercy of God and not on the basis of our own perfection. There are people who say, why didn't God just make us automatons, could have made us obedient, he, he could have just made us these creatures who simply, simply do what God wants, wants, wants them to do, 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 in a max headroom type of way. But he didn't do that, did he? He gave you volition, he gave you this willpower, he gave you this capacity to say no to God, to argue with him, to be his critic. And yet he endures all of that because he knows in the process we can come to a place eventually of surrendering, not so much to his fear, but rather surrendering to his love, to surrender to his love. Oh, fear may make, you, may make you come to Christ or even listen to Him, but it's the idea of surrendering to this graciousness, this love that has, He has for me that becomes transformational. What the Scriptures reveal is that God had, from before the beginning, a plan for the redemption of mankind, and it was always and forever going to be a relational dynamic based upon grace. Ari Criswell, years ago, came up with this phrase. He called it the scarlet thread of redemption. And he said, even from the passages that we looked at today, that you can begin to follow that thread, that scarlet red thread symbolizing the blood of Christ, all the way through the Bible until you and I today, which brings us to a saving relationship. And what that thread of redemption was all about, as we, at least what we looked at today, first of all, is that God began with an awareness of our need for Him because of sin. In verse 7 again, it says, the eyes of them were opened and they realized that they were naked and they soaked themselves fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. There's an awareness that begins that I have a need within me that cannot be adequately met by me. It's Augustine saying, the heart of man is restless until he finds his rest in thee. It's Pascal's great void that he says exists in every man, that it's like a vacuum that craves to be filled, that this is something that's inherent to the human condition. And God says, I have created this awareness that you are not enough. You are not good enough. And you and I all have that experience, don't we? We have times when we just, we behave and respond and react with such splendidness, and then other times we're us again. <laughs> we, we, dri we drop the ball, we dribble it out of bounds, we, we miss the big shot, we fall short, and all the rest of that stuff. And we may try to comfort and humor ourselves by saying, well, nobody bats a thousand, you know, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But we understand that somehow we're missing out. But the second thing he did was, in light of that, he made a promise that he was going to redeem them out of that desperate situation. Because on one hand, he's implanted this perception, this understanding, this realization that there is something about the idea of perfection, of completeness, and we yearn for it. Solomon said, God has put eternity in our hearts, so we yearn for the perfection of the eternal, and yet we find ourselves wholly incapable of getting there, and so he makes them a promise. And we can easily miss this, but it basically he says to the, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, that there's going to become an enmity, not just simply with snakes, but with Satan. 
There's going to be this awareness that there's evil personality, this malfactor in the universe that we need to be concerned about, who is not seeking our well-being, but rather he is seeking to hurt us as deeply as he possibly can, if not to literally destroy us. But he said that the son that would come from the woman would crush your head. What does that mean? The head represents a place of dominion and control and authority, that there will be a a child, an offspring that will come from Eve that will destroy the dominion that now Satan had over mankind through through sin and through temptation, that he would come and destroy that and goes on to say, and you will strike his heel. He'll crush you, but in the process of crushing you, you will kill him. This is an image of the cross where Jesus destroys the power of Satan by his death on the cross and even more so by his resurrection, but in the process, his death was required. And how is all that going to happen? He said, thirdly, it's going to come by grace. In verse 21, we read, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, his wife, and clothed them. That God says, you've attempted to clothe your nakedness, your shame, we talked about last week, with your own best creative ideas. But God says, I will offer a sacrifice, and I will take those skins, and I will use that as a covering, so that even the word sacrifice in certain contexts literally means a covering, a thing that wraps over and covers and really kind of disguises or hides what we are ashamed of. That's why Paul would write to the Ephesians and say, put off the old man and put on the new man. It's a term basically referring to changing garments, that we robe ourselves, we're told, in the righteousness of Christ and so forth. So that when we look at this whole encounter with God, uh, Adam and Eve encountering God after their transgression, the question I have to ask myself is, so what does Adam and Eve add to this whole equation? Well, the answer is really nothing positive. Uh, they offer fig leaves, but they even had to borrow them from God. They weren't their own. Uh, they, they hid and excused and blamed, but even that they borrowed from the serpent. They couldn't even come up with sin on their own. They had to follow a bad leader. But in contrast, what was God's contribution? He sought them out. He found them. He, confor- he confronted their sins. That's a part I don't usually enjoy. He, he covers their shame. He comforts them with the promise of a Savior. Maybe there's just one thing that they contribute to this whole thing in a positive sense. They did accept the promise that God made, that I will give you an offspring who will return you into that intimacy of God that you lost because of your sin. And they did accept that promise, but like you and I, they do it imperfectly. We often accept God's grace and then try to figure out how to work that angle. That's kind of the human dynamic. I'm going to accept your grace, Lord, now I'm going to start working that angle. How does grace work out through my hands? Well, that's why we find them trying to facilitate. Remember the story of Abraham, how he and Sarah can't have a child, and so Hagar said, or Sarah says, take my handmaiden, Hagar, and Abraham, you know, I mean, he, he says, yeah, that's a good idea. So they sleep together. She produces a son who becomes a curse upon the Israeli people even to this day. You know, I mean, it's, it, it, he, he took it into his own hands, 
He basically, by sleeping with Hagar, he tried through his own efforts. And when God says, I'm going to give you a son, and Abraham replies, says, well, I've already got a son, Ishmael. You don't need to bother God. I've already taken care of the problem all on my own. God says, no, that's you. <laughs> you did that. I'm going to do something that you can't do. And at your age, <clears throat> at 100 years of age, I'm going to give you a child. And your wife, at 90 years of age, I'm going to give her a child. This is the miraculous power of God to do what we are incapable of doing. And so it is that we find that Adam and Eve, they essentially, I would say, become the inventors of religion. Chapter 4 of verse 1 in Genesis, it says, And Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I love the way she phrases, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, how does anybody conceive without the help of the Lord? I mean, birth and life itself is a miracle. So the simple fact is that, that God did this, and yet here we find her beginning to say, well, I'm going to facilitate this. And not only did God not need their help, we find that this son that she creates that she bears, then she's looking to him as being the redeemer who's going to deliver them from the, from the bondage of Satan. We find it turns out different than she thought. It says later on in verse 8 that Cain, her firstborn son, attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And they did it in church. They had a theological disagreement. Abel said, God wants a sacrifice, not something that I grew. Abel's sacrifice is an expression of the grace of God. I'm going to give back to God what God gave to us. Cain says, look at the produce that I produced. They have a theological disagreement because God accepts Abel's sacrifice, rejects Cain's, and so Cain's solution, as per usual, is to kill the offending party and thereby hoping to resolve the problem. And what follows on the heels of this is Cain produces a long line of murderers and adulterers and predators to the point that when we get to the, the sixth chapter of Genesis, God says simply, I've got to kind of rinse the decks of humanity, keep a handful and start all over again, a la the flood. Well, after Cain failed to be that, she, it doesn't deter Eve. She gives it a second try. In verse 25, it says, Adam lay with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, which means compensation. He's the replacement of the first one that didn't go bad, saying, God has granted me another child. Essentially, that characterizes what religion is. Religion is mankind's best effort to try to connect with God. In fact, it's man's attempt to save himself by his own efforts, whether it's sowing fig leaves or trying to produce our own Messiah. We just simply say, if we can do this, it will resolve everything and everything will be wonderful forever after. Relationship, or redemption, excuse me, is just the opposite. It's God's attempt to save mankind through mercy and grace. Specifically, what do we mean by grace? It means free and undeserved favor from God. Manifests itself in, in our salvation from sin uh, and the bestowal of untold blessings that God brings into our life every day of our life. That it's that awareness that creates thankfulness in our hearts because we realize that everything about our life is a gift from God. Even some things that may seem at the moment unwelcome, God is working that together for good things. 
But here's the thing I want you to understand. The doctrine and the concept of grace is unique to Christianity. We talk about the, the differences and the similarities between all sorts of religious faiths, and some people always try to kind of gloss over and say, well, basically, they're all the same, you know, they, they have the same rules and regulations, and they want people to be good people and all the rest of that. And, and that's true, but where they become different, what takes Christianity and puts it in a whole category by itself is this idea of grace. Because every religious system other than Christianity, and sometimes it sneaks into Christianity, but every religious system is based upon you appeasing God and earning your salvation. In fact, in Judaism, they, they begin with 613 commandments of the Old Testament, and they basically say, we, the Torah needs to be kept. Now, Jesus comes along and preaches a Sermon on the Mount and begins to say, even if you do your best to keep the Torah, you will never be good enough because your thoughts will betray you even your, though your actions may not. And in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically leveled the entire theological foundations upon which Judaism was then and even today is based. And it's not surprising that religious systems that say that you have to earn heaven also leave you with absolute uncertainty whether you'll get there or not. I remember I was so shocked the first time I was ever in, in Israel. I was at the Wailing Wall on, 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 on the beginning of Shabbat, and I'm talking with this young yeshiva student, this man who's studying for the rabbin, rabbinical uh, service. And, and he, uh, we started talking about, uh, you know, knowing God, and his comment was, well, we can never know if we're saved. We can just hope for the best when we die. I said, based upon what? Based upon the measurement of good versus evil in your life, and if the scale tips towards more to good than evil, then you get to go to heaven. And all I could say is, if that's true, I'm toast. I'm saying, <laughs> I mean, I'm in deep weeds here. I'm in deep trouble because I can never undo and I can never do enough of the good. The same way when we talk about Islam, the Quran basically teaches that salvation is based upon purification by good deeds. Purification by good deeds. Think about that phrase for a long time and you'll get depressed pretty quickly. Because you know one of the dynamics, the catch-22s of that kind of thinking is? The more good you do, the more you realize the good you have not yet done. <laughs> you don't find yourself moving up higher the ladder. You find that the ladder just gets taller and taller. Basically, they tell you prayer, almsgiving, fasting, living according to the Quran, doing all these things. If you, you do it well enough, you may luck out. No wonder people try to find shortcuts when they say, well, but if you strap on a bomb and blow yourself up and as many people as you can, then you get to automatically go, well, shoot, if I believe that, I'm going to take that easier option because I know that the way I'm doing it now isn't working so well. And even within Hinduism, with the Hindus, for Hindu, it's, it's called moksha. It's this idea of devotion and discipline. You devote yourself to the one of the three million gods and you discipline yourself through yogas so that when you see those guys who are all wrapped around themselves like pretzels or eating glass and doing all these unthinkable things, these are all disciplines that they believe if we can master these things, we can come to a place where we're in a state of complete oneness with God and then we get to go into eternity. 
You see, what really all of these things are is a treadmill that keeps getting steeper and faster so that you never get any closer and eventually, out of exhaustion, you'll fall down and hit the floor. You, know, you ever fallen off a treadmill? Yeah, I, I hope somebody else has. <laughs> but you know, that's, that, that's the idea is it just keeps on getting steeper and steeper and getting harder and harder and harder. And that's what religion does. You will eventually fail. Redemption is something completely different. First of all, it's all of grace. It's none of works. And in a very real sense, it's none of me beyond the point of saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The only thing, the work, the only work that I do is to tell the truth, to get honest. That's why the classic passage, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, I know many of you can quote it from memory, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he adds, this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God and not by works so that no one can boast. He says it's by grace and then by four statements he said, disabuse yourself of any illusion that somehow it's accredited to you even in the slightest and the smallest degree. Why did he have to do that? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But this isn't just one passage. It's something that's repeated. I don't even have time to go through them all. But there's ones like Titus 3, 5 that says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done. Now, he's not saying don't do good things. He says, but we're not saved because of them, but rather a bit because of His mercy that in turn made us available to His grace. Acts 15, 11, we find that James says to the, or Peter, excuse me, says to the assembled leadership there, he says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, even though these were good card-carrying Jews who had been circumcised and didn't eat pork and never enjoyed bacon or some of the finer things in life. Even though he says, we know that that doesn't save us. And so they said, why are we excluding the Gentiles and telling them that they have to do these things because those things don't save? You see, it's all about what God has done for us, not what we have done or haven't done or hope in the future to do for Him. So that even when we fall, we fall forward into His hands. Did you hear that? That even when you and I fall, we fall forward into His hands. We are in His grip. We don't have a grip on Him. Chuck Smith used to always say, if you knew how tightly God had hold of you, you wouldn't worry about falling <laughs> because He doesn't slip. When I bought chicken salad at Costco last night, my wife said, do you want me to carry that? I'm afraid you're going to drop it. And I said, Why? What's the problem? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> she just knows that if something could be dropped, it will be dropped like the planter that I dropped yesterday. Uh, but it makes good landfill. But uh, the bottom line is we cannot justify ourselves. We cannot sanctify ourselves. And certainly we can try, but we'll not succeed at glorifying ourselves these are the things, because as Paul said in Romans 8, he says, for what the law or literally works was powerless to do. It's unpowerless to do these things. In that is weakened by my sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And when He did that, He crushed the serpent's head. 
You might say, well, why in the world would anybody object to the idea that we are saved by the grace of God and grace alone? Well, I come up with three things that I've heard uh, expressed to me. The first one is, it's way too simple. I mean, I've told this story many times, but, and skip, excuse me for being repetitive, but at my age, you start running out of new ideas. But, you know, I mean, I'm waiting to board a plane in Moscow, and this very uh, accomplished businessman, he's young, good-looking, dressed to the nines, and he, he starts talking to me about his life, and I'm, I'm, you know, and all the rest, and I won't even go into details about that, but so I present to him the gospel of Jesus Christ, and his answer to me was, that's too simple. Or excuse me, he said, that's too easy. And my response was, no, it's not easy. It's simple, but it's the hardest thing you will ever try to do because you have to give up on yourself and trust Him completely for everything. It's the hardest thing you'll ever face in your life. So here was a guy who uh, spoke numerous languages, was at the top of Manhattan's executive suites, uh, uh, spoke Hebrew, uh, served in the mil Hebrew military, was involved. I mean, his, his resume was, made me blush by comparison, you know? I mean, I, I, I have a few things I can boast of. I've seen important people on TV. But <laughs> other than that, I mean, he was... And, and, and he, he's a, here's a guy who has worked hard to accomplish everything that he has gained. And I say, all you need to do is confess your sins and ask Jesus in your heart, and you'll get to go to heaven. He says, that's too easy. Not easy. Simple, but very hard. And then there's some who take the other tactic, saying it's too humbling. Remember what Paul said again? He said, it is the gift of God, it's not by works, so that no one can boast. Believe it or not, you and I like to boast. In fact, in 1 John 2, 16, when we talked about that passage uh, last week where he says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. You and I love to boast. We like to do it in a way that doesn't become obvious, but we just, we do like to kind of say and do things that we think will kind of lift us up a little bit above the crowd and give us a little distinction, a little recognition, even if it's, well, at least I didn't back over him after I ran over him. You know, <laughs> it may not be a lot to boast about, but at least we will take even that because there's such a desperate a dynamic of shame within every one of us that we want to do anything that can elevate us above that and make us feel good about ourselves. And so there's this subtlety in there, this serpentine subtlety inside our own nature that wants to take this, God did it all, and some say, you know, yeah, Lord did it, but He used me, His humble servant. So that I, like Eve, can say, I, the Lord helped me. Well, sure, He helped you. He helped you. He, he held you. He carried you. He, he, he did everything, and He just let you go along thinking you were the one who was doing it. And the simple fact is that that is humbling, and people resist that. In fact, uh, Rabbi Zacharias said, one time said that hell has a theme song. It's sung by Frank Sinatra. It's called, I Did It My Way. And here's a couple of lines from the songs that you may recall. I won't sing it because I, I'm a kind man. Uh, but he says, one of the phrases, and now the end is near, and I face the final curtain. And right away I'm saying, it's a good time to get on your knees 
just the opposite. And I may say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it my way. For what is man, what has he, what has he got? If not himself, then he is not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the records show I took the blow and I did it my way. You know what the record shows? He's still dead. <laughs> and if that's doing it his way, no thank you. But it's this boastfulness. I did it my way. So what? So what? Because it doesn't even come close to addressing the issue. But then there's the those who have said to me, and many well-meaning Christians, saying, well, you got to be careful of the doctrine of grace because it's, it's dangerous. You, give, you're, you can give people license to sin. It's interesting. I've never known anybody that needed a license to sin. <laughs> In fact, I think what they're struggling with is an unrecognized level of the pervasive perniciousness of sin within their own self. That when we categorize sin as is the, the, the top ten, and we say, well, I haven't done any of those things, Jesus was very clear. You know, you're guilty on so many levels. Where do we start? As I say, and maybe it's an overstatement, but maybe not, that if I'm sucking air, I'm probably sinning. Because somewhere along the line, I'm going to think something or say something. There is never any time out of my mind or out of my mouth or through my actions comes a perfectly holy and pure thought, word, or action. It's always tainted by the weakness, as Paul said, of my sin nature. You see, just the opposite is true. Grace is a force that comes from the Holy Spirit, it's not just a theological concept. And that's a change we need to realize, that the grace of God's force, we see it so clearly. This is why we would say, cha grace changes everything. Because what is it, what are we told? We're told that grace is, first of all, a teacher. In, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes to Titus, he says, for the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live life self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. The word teach that's used there literally means to tutor or to train a child, to, to chasten them and to correct them for their misbehavior. The grace of God is the fact that God is toiling over you day and night. God is constantly at work in your life to bring you into a greater conformity to Him so that His enjoyment of your fellowship can be increased, that He can find ever-increasing levels of pleasure in you. And He's constantly doing that. Secondly, what we understand is that He not only teaches us, but He compels us to submit to that which He's teaching us. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14, He says, for Christ's love compels, literally means to take hold, to constrain, to, to compress, to hold something tightly together. In other words, do you feel like there are times in your life where God is narrowing your world and forcing you in a direction that you otherwise would not choose for yourself? Or let me put it a different way. How many times have you found yourself saying, I'm doing this, but I don't want to do this? You know, like going up to your wife and say, you're right. <clears throat> I was wrong. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Uh, would, would you, would you, well, you know what I mean. 
Yeah, that's, and yet, when I look at scriptures, what does it tell me? <laughs> confess your sins, confess your faults, ask for forgiveness. I mean, that's, everybody understands it, even people who aren't Christians understand that. And yet, why do we end up doing that? Why do we end up forgiving someone who is, has, has, in our minds, consider, com committed what we think should be the unpardonable sin? Because God said to. And that's probably the hardest thing to do of anything to do. Because nothing really betrays the gospel than an unforgiving heart. Nothing betrays the gospel worse. That we are called by God to forgive people. To manifest what? The gracious heart of God because we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. That's grace. But thirdly, it not only teaches me, it not only compels me, it changes me. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and he, he said in, in verse, chapter 6 of the first book, he said, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? How do we define wicked? It's a person who is disconnected from God. So not necessarily people who have, you know, gone around slashing or like we see repeatedly these days, young men or, who walk into schools and settings and begin to kill helpless, indefense, undefensible people uh, with force of power and all the rest of it. And we say, well, that's so wicked. Well, it is wicked. But that's not the only kind of wickedness. That just being, saying that I don't need God, I can do it my way is wicked. He says, and people who think like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he says, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Because God is saying all of those behaviors are clear evidence that a person is living outside of the grace of God. They may be saying, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, but, it, it, but by their works, Jesus said, they deny Him. And He said, then He adds this, and that is what some of you were. What changed it for me? Well, I just decided one day I wasn't going to be that person anymore. I made a resolution. It's January 1st. I made a resolution, and I decided I am not going to be that mean, jerky people I have been all my life. Well, no. He said, you were washed. You know, I've tried to teach my dog how to wash himself. <laughs> we're no closer after 10 years than when we first started. He still waits. He does not mind his own stink. And let's be honest, neither do you. In fact, you wouldn't even know you stank unless God began to put his truth before you and you go, oh. I do have body odor. He says, uh, He washed us. You were sanctified. It means He separates you from the common, the everyday, and the normal, and He made you a special possession in His presence, that you became part of His treasure trove, that He separated you unto Himself, that you might be wholly His, and you were justified. In other words, you were declared not guilty. You were acquitted of all the crimes that you were guilty of. And he did, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then he throws in the statement. He says, you know, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. 
Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything because I have allowed myself to be mastered by the Savior. So the writer of Hebrews really kind of summarizes the whole dynamic when he says in Hebrews 4.16, he says, let us then, in other words, allow this to happen, approach the throne of grace. In other words, God's throne upon the earth was called what? A throne of law, the throne of the creator, the throne of the judge of the, no, the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God, and this may confound you, it may disappoint you, I don't know, but God is purposely in the process of setting you up for failure so that you will discover that it's all of grace. Now, think about that. Somebody will say, you're just giving people permission to be bad people. (laughs) Again, Whoever asked permission to be bad? (laughs) No. But God is in this experience where He allows us to see the truth about ourselves that we don't want to see, and we are humbled by that, and we're so broken and remorseful, we cry out, God, have mercy upon me, and God says, that's a word I cannot resist. You ask for mercy, I'm on you like whites on rice, and I am going to show you grace. Grace that will empower you not to be you anymore. So when somebody does something that offends you or wounds you or hurts you, and you simply say, God, please forgive me. Give me grace. Give me grace to love them anyway. God says, you got it. When we face a temptation and a struggle, and we say, oh, Lord, it's more than I can resist. He says, give me grace. And God says, you got it. I'll give you that empowerment in your life. Because when you gave your life to Christ, basically, You received His grace, and in that was a kind of a private vow between you and God that you would become a vessel of His grace. That's what He wants us to be about. And the only way we can really get grace is by being humbled by how ungracious we can be. But when we experience it ourselves, it frees us from ourselves. And even when we fall, we fall forward. We fall into His hands. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that Your Holy Spirit would be doing a work inside of each and every one of us right now, this moment, as we're here, Lord. We didn't come here this morning because <clears throat> somebody put a gun to our head or we got paid to be here. Or there's... We came here, Lord, because whether we recognize it or not, there's a searching and a yearning inside of every one of us that wants to know You. And want those of us who know you want to know you better. And we want to be victors in this, this thing that we're going through. And yet, Lord, the way up with you is often the way down. That oftentimes we have to fail and recognize what a failure we are in order to really appreciate how gracious you are and how available that grace is. And I pray for my brothers and sisters right here this morning who are struggling with this in their own life. I struggle with it every day. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just give them such an outpouring of your grace that they would know, Lord, that it's never been about their performance. It's always been about you. It's always been about what you did. What you did on the cross fulfilled all the performance needs for all of humanity from, now, from then till the rest of time. And we are complete in you 
not because of what we've done or said, but we are completing you because of what you did on the cross for us. Help us to live increasingly every day in that reality to reprogram our own hearts and minds that we would live under the banner of grace we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As we come to the close of our service, we, many of you know that we have an extended time of worship, uh, not too long, about four hours, and uh, <laughs> we lock the doors so you cannot leave. Uh, armed guards will patrol. Um, no, seriously, uh, as I, I reiterate this a lot, and forgive me, but I feel like we have to remind people, because if you're like me, you forget really quickly, but it is so easy to hear something that God had just spoken to you, and, and I'm not saying that because I said it, I'm just saying that the Holy Spirit can, either, can sometimes speak over the top of me, like now. Uh, <laughs> but to give us an opportunity to really sit back and say, God, help me to know this, this whole thing of grace. There may be areas in your life where you really know you need to experience that grace. That there's things you need to forgive, there's things you need to, to, to repent of. And to understand that when we do that, when we confess things to God, it's really like opening a closed door to the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of grace then can flow in because you've opened the door. That's what confession is. Confession isn't exposing you for the louse that you are. We already know that about you. We talk to your, your siblings, your spouse. But it's, it's really just letting God, having permission to say, God, I need your grace to come in and do the work that he wants to do in your life. When we partake of the elements up here, the symbols of the Lord's Last Supper, I mean, it's, isn't that all about grace? Jesus said, this is my body, not your body. <laughs> this is my body that I'm, I'm going to give for you. This cup, this is my blood, not your blood. My blood that I'm going to give. The life of the body is in the blood. And I'm giving you my life that you might experience life. You might experience healing. You might experience a touch of God. And so even when we partake of these elements, we never forget this is a symbol of grace. This is an encounter of grace. It's a grace awakening for us personally where God, thank you that you've loved such a wretch as me. I encourage you to respond to God.